0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a history of the world according to war. I'm your flesh and blood host, Brett,
1: and I am your AI co host, Victor. Thank you for joining us for yet another journey into the captivating world of historical warfare. Today, we are delving into one of the most significant naval battles in ancient history, the Battle of Salamis. Get ready for a thrilling exploration into this crucial conflict of the Greco Persian Wars. Wow,
0: a naval battle. We haven't discussed a naval battle before. The closest that we've come has been the fabled Trojan War, whether or not that actually happened. And that really didn't feature much of a naval combat situation in our discussion.
1: You're correct, Brett. It's a change of pace and a new layer to our exploration of historical warfare. The Battle of Salamis was a unique instance in history where naval prowess played a decisive role in the outcome. The techniques, tactics, and overall strategy associated with naval warfare differ significantly from their land-based counterparts, providing us with a fresh perspective on ancient conflict.
0: Well, I'm both intrigued and anxious to get into our discussion. Our last episode was about the Battle of Thermopylae, which also took place during the Greco-Persian Wars. How long after that conflict was the Battle of Salamis?
1: The Battle of Salamis occurred in 480 BC, which is the same year as the Battle of Thermopylae. In fact, Salamis took place a little more than a month after the events at Thermopylae. So, in the grand scheme of the Greco-Persian Wars, it followed very closely on the heels of Thermopylae. It's part of the same Persian invasion led by King Xerxes I, which also included the Battle of Thermopylae.
0: Okay, then I don't think we need to get into a lot of the context building. We can just go back and listen to our previous episode. The time frame is basically the same, following directly on its heels, and the players are the same. So, just a... a brief recap um, to remind our listeners, and please, Victor, do correct me if I'm wrong. The Persians are invading Greece. Greece is currently occupied by a collection of city-states known as the Hellenic League. They're loosely aligned to defend against the invasion. At the Battle of Thermopylae, we had 300 Spartan warriors, assisted by around 7,000 other Hellenic troops, defending a strategic pass to put a halt to the Persians.
1: That is correct, Brett. While ultimately a Persian victory, the Battle of Thermopylae showcased the courageous resistance of the Greeks, and in particular, the Spartan warriors. Following Thermopylae, the Persians advanced into Attica, where Athens was situated, and the Greeks retreated to the Peloponnese, fortifying the Isthmus of Corinth.
0: All right, well, let's just pick it up there, kind of a direct continuation from our last episode. So the Persians overwhelm the Greeks and continue into Attica. Do they occupy Athens, or are they
1: just going to destroy it and move on? Xerxes and his forces did indeed enter Athens, but they found it largely deserted. As we mentioned in our discussion of the Battle of Thermopylae, the Athenian population had evacuated to the nearby island of Salamis and other regions in anticipation of the Persian invasion. As per Herodotus, the Persians, upon arrival in Athens, burned and razed the city, including the Acropolis, as a response to the Athenians' defiance. However, the destruction of Athens was not the end of the conflict. The Athenians and their allies still held a significant naval force and were determined to resist the Persian advance. This brings us to the Battle of Salamis.
0: Yeah, that's right. I remember that. So the Athenians retreated to the island of Salamis to prepare a naval defense. Are the Persians invading by land or by sea throughout this whole conquest of their own?
1: The Persians used both land and sea routes to invade Greece.
0: And how far is Salamis from Athens?
1: The island of Salamis is very close to Athens, about 16 kilometers or roughly 10 miles west from the Athenian port of Piraeus. The proximity to Athens made Salamis a strategic location for the Athenians to retreat to and also to launch their defense from. It also meant that the battle that took place there was in full view of the city of Athens, a dramatic and likely horrifying spectacle for any inhabitants who had remained in the city.
0: Whoa, yeah, that would be brutal to watch. Did the Persians just kind of continue their advance from Thermopylae through Athens and then make an advance on Salamis?
1: Yes. After the Battle of Thermopylae and the sacking of Athens, the Persians sought to extend their control over the rest of Greece. One of their main objectives was to secure their control of the sea, which would allow them to support their land forces and cut off the Greeks from outside aid. Okay,
0: and we still have Xerxes leading the charge for the Persians, right?
1: Yes, King Xerxes was the leader of the Persian Empire at the time of the Battle of Salamis, and he was present during the battle. He set up a throne on a hill overlooking the sea, from which he could watch the progress of the battle. The Persian navy was commanded by different admirals, including Xerxes' brother Achaemenes. Although Xerxes was present, he mostly observed the battle from a distance and relied on his commanders to carry out his orders on the battlefield.
0: Okay, this seems like a big deal for the Persians. What's Xerxes hoping to get out of this battle? If he decimates the Greek navy, how much does that help him in his conquest?
1: Xerxes' main goal was the total subjugation of Greece. The Greek cities, particularly Athens and Sparta, had been thorns in Persia's side for years, even supporting uprisings within the Persian Empire. Conquering Greece would remove this source of instability and potentially even provide a launching point for further westward expansion. The Greek navy was a major threat to the Persian supply lines. By controlling the seas, the Greeks could potentially cut off the Persian forces in Greece from their supplies and reinforcements. Winning at Salamis would have allowed Xerxes to protect his supply lines and isolate the Greek city-states from each other. A successful naval battle would disrupt Persian supply lines. The Persian army was massive and relied heavily on supplies brought by sea. Disrupting these supplies could hamper the Persian army's operations in Greece, and in the longer term could even force them to retreat if they couldn't adequately feed and equip their troops. Also, maintaining control of the sea could limit the movement of the Persian forces. A dominant Persian navy could transport troops around the Greek defenses, potentially striking at vulnerable locations. A Greek victory would prevent this, forcing the Persians to engage Greek land forces at places of Greek choosing.
0: Side note, Victor, I find it interesting that your AI voice synthesis module does not consistently pronounce uh, Salamis or Salamis or Salamis. And as a result, I don't know how it's actually pronounced. So we're just going to continue pressing onward with whatever you say. Uh, You mentioned that the island of Salamis was close to Athens, about 10 miles from the port. With it being so close, did it act like a choke point? Other than just taking the battle to the water, what was the Greek plan
1: of defense? Absolutely, the geography of the area did act as a natural choke point. The strait between the island of Salamis and the mainland was narrow, and this was a key factor in the Greek defensive strategy. The primary warship of the Greeks during this period was known as a trireme. A trireme was a type of galley that was relatively small and light, but extremely fast and maneuverable. It had three banks of oars on each side, with each oar being manned by a single rower. This allowed the ship to be controlled with a great deal of precision.
0: Oh, good. Here's another word that you don't pronounce consistently, so I'm just guessing. Trireme. We're going to say that's the right way to say it. Um, So it sounds like these triremes are going to factor into the Greeks' defensive strategy. How does one of these triremes engage in combat?
1: The trireme's primary weapon was a bronze sheath ram located at the waterline at the front of the ship. The ram was designed to puncture the hull of an enemy ship. After ramming, the trireme would back off. Allowing the damaged ship to take on water and eventually sink.
0: Dumb question, but all these ships are made of wood, right?
1: Yes, the ships in question were indeed made of
0: wood. <laughs> you say that so condescendingly. Okay, so with the boats being made of wood, what does sinking actually look like? There's another dumb question. Are there enough heavy supplies on board to like bring the ship down, or does it just kind of fill with water, becomes ineffective, and just float around in the in the tides and the currents?
1: Yes. Sinking in the context of these ancient naval battles didn't necessarily mean the ship disappearing beneath the waves, as we might picture with modern steel vessels. When a trireme, or similar ship, was said to be sunk, it typically meant the ship was no longer operable and may have been swamped or filled with water.
0: Okay, well tell me about the Persian fleet. Do they have similar ships?
1: The Persian fleet consisted of a mix of different types of ships from the various nations that were part of the Persian Empire. Many of their ships were larger and slower than the Greek triremes, with higher freeboards and less emphasis on ramming as a tactic.
0: Okay, so they're a little bit more a hodgepodge. What do they do instead of ramming?
1: These larger Persian ships were often more heavily armed with archers and marines, and their tactics typically involved getting alongside an enemy ship and boarding it for hand-to-hand combat. The cramped conditions in the Straits of Salamis would have made it difficult for the Persian ships to maneuver effectively and would have limited the effectiveness of their archers and marines.
0: Hold up, when you talk about a Persian marine, what do you mean?
1: Persian marines were essentially the naval infantry of the Persian Empire, typically serving aboard warships and engaging in hand-to-hand combat during naval battles. Like the ground forces of the Persian Empire. These marines would have been drawn from a variety of different nations within the empire and would have been armed and armored according to their own national traditions.
0: Well, okay, so in the eyes of the Persian Empire, a naval battle is actually very similar to land warfare except for the maneuvering aspects. They're still using archers for ranged combat, and their close-quarter tactics involve boarding an enemy ship and engaging in hand-to-hand combat, so a very similar skill set to, to land warfare. Meanwhile, the Greeks have specific naval tactics involving battering rams and attempts to sink the enemy vessels, and these ships are designed for that, being small, fast, and maneuverable. Is that a fair summary of the two sides and how they handle naval warfare?
1: Yes, Brett, that's a solid summary. In open waters, the Persians could have used their superior numbers to great effect, surrounding and overwhelming individual Greek ships. But the narrow Straits of Salamis complicated this approach, and allowed the Greeks to make the most of their ship's speed and agility. The Greek ships were able to strike quickly, then retreat before the Persians could effectively respond. A strategy known as hit and run. The tight confines also made it difficult for the Persians to fully utilize their numerical advantage.
0: Okay, so we see the Greeks again basing down a numeric advantage from the Persians, and they're utilizing the geography to limit the effectiveness of the Persian forces. Then, their plan is to leverage superior tactics to whittle away at the Persians. This sounds like a water-based version of the Battle of Thermopylae.
1: That's a very astute comparison, Brett. Much like the narrow pass at Thermopylae, the Straits of Salamis forced the Persians into a confined space where their numerical advantage was less meaningful. This allowed the smaller Greek force to compete more effectively with the larger Persian fleet. However, while the Greek strategy at Thermopylae was largely defensive, The naval battle at Salamis was decidedly more active. The Greeks weren't just standing their ground, they were on the attack, launching rapid strikes against the Persian fleet, and then pulling back before the Persians could mount an effective counterattack. The fluid, dynamic nature of the naval battlefield made it a very different kind of confrontation.
0: Sure. So Xerxes is chasing after the fleeing Athenians, and he moves quickly because he believes that they are fleeing in chaos. In reality, they have the time to set up a defensive line near the island at a narrow point. I kind of imagine the Persian fleet rapidly closing the distance on the Greeks, and then at some point, they see that the Greek navy is far more organized than they were actually anticipating. Is that what happened?
1: In essence, yes, the Persian fleet expected to encounter a disorganized and fleeing Greek navy. However, upon reaching the Strait of Salamis, they were met with an organized Greek naval force that was not only prepared to fight— but had positioned themselves in a way that negated the Persians' numerical advantage. The Greeks had lined up their triremes within the narrow straits where the Persian galleys, with their large numbers and less maneuverable ships, couldn't fully exploit their numerical superiority.
0: Oh man, these Persians better watch out. What happens next?
1: After the initial shock of encountering a well-organized Greek navy in a narrow strait where their numbers counted for less, the Persians were forced into a battle on the Greeks' terms.
0: That's not a good position to be in.
1: The Greeks, knowing the local currents, launched a feigned retreat, luring the Persian fleet further into the strait. The Persian ships eager for victory pursued the Greeks. However, once the Persian ships were sufficiently within the strait, the Greeks executed a well-planned turn and began their real attack. Due to the narrowness of the strait, the Persians found their movements severely restricted. Their larger and less maneuverable ships had trouble turning and avoiding collisions, and the disorder only grew as the battle continued. The Greeks' smaller, faster triremes were able to use their rams effectively, sinking Persian vessels and causing chaos among the enemy ranks.
0: Was this just a free-for-all, or was there a method to the Greeks' madness?
1: (laughs) The Greeks focused their efforts on the Persian flagship, and upon sinking it, they significantly disrupted the command and control of the Persian fleet. Seeing their flagship sink must have been a severe blow to the morale of the Persian sailors and commanders.
0: What's the importance of the flagship? Why is it so vital to the coherence of the Persians?
1: The Persian navy was a multi-ethnic force, composed of contributions from subject peoples of the Persian Empire like Phoenicians, Egyptians, and Cypriots, among others. While each contingent might have had its own commander, overall command was indeed centralized and probably situated on the flagship.
0: You've talked about how effective the Greek naval strategy was, but what about the Persians? Did, did any Persian ships get close enough to board a Greek vessel?
1: There are no specific accounts of Persian marines boarding Greek ships during the Battle of Salamis. Most historical sources, such as the account by the Greek historian Herodotus, primarily describe the Greeks ramming and sinking the Persian vessels. However, considering the nature of naval combat at the time, It's likely that at least some attempts at boarding occurred during the battle, so while there aren't specific accounts of boarding actions, it's reasonable to infer that some likely took place, especially as the battle devolved into chaos. But the Greeks' tactics of using their ships as battering rams, combined with the cramped conditions of the strait, would have made it difficult for the Persians to effectively employ their preferred tactics.
0: Gotcha. Maybe we should give the Persians some credit, and maybe there was some boarding going on, but we just don't have any historical record of that. So how long does this go on for? How long did this battle last?
1: The Battle of Salamis took place over the course of one day in September 480 BC.
0: One day, wow.
1: Although the exact duration isn't known, ancient naval battles like this one could have lasted for several hours. Factors such as the size of the opposing forces, the tactics used, The weather conditions and the state of the sea could all have influenced the length of the battle.
0: So you don't have any recorded information that's, you know, factually accurate about the duration of this battle, but you're a smart AI. Can you make any assumptions or inferences? Like, how long do you think this actually would have taken?
1: In the case of Salamis, the Greeks had the advantage of knowing the local conditions, and they were able to use this to draw the Persians into a confined area, making their superior numbers less of an advantage. The Persians, meanwhile, would have had to coordinate a much larger force, which would have taken time and complicated their tactics. Given all these factors, it's reasonable to assume that the battle lasted for a significant part of the day, from morning until late afternoon, with the fighting likely being most intense during the middle part of the day.
0: Okay, thanks for that analysis. So, at some point during the day, the Persians must have realized that they were outmatched. When did they come to that conclusion?
1: The exact timing of this realization is difficult to pin down given the chaos and intensity of the battle. But it likely occurred when the Persian fleet started to find itself trapped in the narrow straits with Greek triremes striking them from multiple angles. The initial shock of the Greek counterattack and the devastating effectiveness of their ramming tactics would have signaled that things were not going as planned.
0: How do the Persians respond when they see their ships being decimated?
1: Seeing their ships getting wrecked, Some Persians tried to retreat, but the narrowness of the strait and the chaos of the battle made it difficult. Xerxes, watching the battle from a distance, was said to have leapt from his throne in despair as he saw the events unfold.
0: Yeah, I imagine he's not too pleased with how things are going. What happens next?
1: After the battle, the Persians were forced to pull back their forces, significantly weakening their hold on the Greek territories they had captured. The Battle of Salamis marked a turning point in the Greco-Persian Wars, shifting the momentum in favor of the Greeks, and paving the way for their eventual victory over the Persian Empire.
0: Did any Persian ships survive?
1: Yes, a number of Persian ships did manage to survive the Battle of Salamis. Although the Greek navy was successful in trapping and sinking many Persian ships, they didn't completely annihilate the Persian fleet. However, the losses were heavy and significant. The surviving Persian ships retreated with the remaining ground forces back to Asia Minor under the cover of darkness, marking a significant withdrawal and the beginning of the end for the Persian invasion.
0: With the Greeks turning back the Persian attack, did they immediately return to Athens after the battle, or were they more focused on vanquishing the Persians across
1: their lands? Following the Battle of Salamis, the Greeks did not immediately return to Athens. Primarily due to the fact that the Persian army still posed a significant threat on land. The naval victory at Salamis was a significant setback for the Persians, but it didn't immediately end their invasion. The Greeks knew that they needed to confront the Persian land forces decisively to end the threat once and for all. So they focused their attention on mobilizing their land forces for the final showdown. This culminated in the Battle of Plataea the following year, where a united whoa, whoa, Greek force
0: Spoiler alert there, Victor. Is the Battle of Plataea worth covering in an episode of our podcast, or was it a fairly uneventful battle?
1: Sorry for the spoiler, Brett. In terms of significance, the Battle of Plataea is definitely worth covering. This was the largest land battle during the Greco-Persian Wars. It could make an engaging episode, especially considering the build-up to the battle, the tense standoff that preceded the actual fighting, and the implications of its outcome for the future of Greece.
0: Okay, I like where your AI big brain is headed.
1: I'm glad to hear that, Brett. I'm here to help make this podcast the best it can be. Is there anything else you want to cover in today's episode, or shall we wrap things up with a summary of the Battle of Salamis and its implications for the Greco-Persian Wars?
0: Let's call it a day, shall we? We're always grateful to our listener for tuning in. If you want to get in contact with either Victor or me, he's at HistorianVictor on Twitter, and I'm at Brett Fitzgerald. And as a reminder, Victor is an AI learning language model and is not to be trusted.
1: Absolutely, Brett. We hope this episode has given our listeners a fascinating insight into the Battle of Salamis, and we're always open to your feedback and questions. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to A History of the World According to War on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue our journey through the annals of warfare. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take care.